It's good to see you all today. If you're a guest, my name is David. We're glad you're here. You're welcome to anything we have going on. I am the pastor of the church. Hey, it's good to have the music guy actually singing this week. If you were here the last couple of weeks, he hadn't been able to sing, 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 sing. He hadn't been able to do that either. He hadn't been able to sing because he had evidently some sort of mysterious voice injury, throat injury. Nobody knew what it was, figured it out. He's just getting old. That's what it was. He turned 40 yesterday. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize he and I were so close in age either. You know, that's, so it's tough. It's tough. You married an old man now, Stasha, sorry. And there's much you can do about it, but just rough it out. Talk to her. It doesn't get any better. <laughs> so like, so we're, uh, we're in a series on the book of Jude. And uh, we started that the 1st of June, kind of go through the middle of July. Jude was the brother of Jesus. <clears throat> he, uh, he wanted to write to some Christians about uh, the common salvation, but he didn't do that. Because there was a problem existing at the church he wrote to, and the problem was false teachers had come in. And the false teachers had this mindset that since you were saved by grace, you could live however you wanted. I mean, you were saved by grace, so God was obligated to save you. He couldn't go back on his grace. They gave you the freedom to live however you wanted to live. And so Jude wrote a book. He brought people into the conflict. He wrote a book that was all about Jesus and what it means to be that follower of Jesus. And so today we're going to come to verses 8 through 13, and we're going to see what Jude says about the way of rebellion. Because these false teachers were rebellious, and they were in a way of rebellion. And here's what you need to get from the message today. It's simply this, the way of rebellion, which is the way of the false teachers, is a way that is condemned by God. The way of rebellion, that, that way, which is the way of the false teachers, is a way that is condemned by God. And so what I want to do to start off is I want you to understand something about the Jewish mindset. Because Luke wrote to Christians who were fundamentally Jewish in their background in the background and growing up. Um, you know, the, the, the Christian movement began primarily among the Jews in the book of Acts. And then as you come to the end of the first century, Christianity has become primarily Gentile. By the time you come to the book of Revelation, it's primarily Gentile. It made that transition. And, and they were still, when, when Jude wrote his book, probably in the mid-60s, I think he wrote this book for different reasons in the mid-60s, there were still large groups of churches and groups of Christians that had come from a Jewish background. And he, he wrote to one of them. And he, he wrote to them, and he wrote in a way that they would understand it, because context matters so much. How you process information, how you understand information matters. And in the Jewish world, and where they were, you know, the, their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, but the only scriptures they had, that was, that was their authority. That was what guided them. And uh, the Old Testament, as we would know, as we would say, points to Jesus. And so they had found Jesus. They had come to faith in Jesus. But there was nothing new for them in terms of Scripture. There was no New Testament yet. The New Testament hadn't been written. They were writing it. Luke, I mean, Jude was writing Jude. He was writing part of the New Testament. So what, what they had, and a lot of the books had been written, but they just weren't you know, dispersed. It wasn't like you know, the Gospel of Matthew was wrote, written, and then everybody had a copy of it. It wasn't like, you know... Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and everybody had a copy of it. It took so much time. So what they relied on is they relied on people to come and teach them. And you see that throughout the New Testament. There were some phenomenal teachers. Paul was a teacher. Peter, they would go and teach. Uh, Paul sent Timothy. Paul sent Silas. Uh, You see Titus going to teach. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they taught. Apollos taught. And you had all of these teachers that were really good. Some we don't even know about. Many we don't even know about. But some would go, and when they would teach things that are false. Well, it's interesting, as the false teachers that went to these of a Jewish background, these Jewish Christians were from a Gentile background, because what they taught 
was about a lifestyle of utter immorality. A Jew would never teach that. I mean, a, a Jewish false teacher would never write about you can live forever you want. In fact, the Jewish false teachers, we know from Paul, um, dealt oftentimes with legalism. You had to go back to the Old Testament way. You had to follow the law. You had to do the sacrifices. False teachers tend to always revert to their core beliefs. And Jews, their core beliefs were legalistic. From the Gentiles, their core beliefs had been licensed to live however you wanted to live. In that period of time, while they had the Old Testament authority, they had not had really the New Testament yet. They did have some other books that were written. I mentioned this to you last week. In the, between the Testament time, there were these apocryphal or pseudepigraphal books. There were these books that brought it out and came about. And they had a great influence on the Jewish way of thinking. Books like First Enoch, which we saw last week, uh, Maccabees, and other books. Um, and, and they had them, and while they were not considered authority or scripture, they influenced them. We're going to see one of those books in a little bit. And because of this influence, some of these books, some of these things that they believed from the writings of Enoch or the writings of Maccabees or the writings of Judith or whatever, the assumption of Moses that we'll see today, had great influence on them. So what would happen is the false teachers may prey on their susceptibility to take something new that had been written. Jude does that as well, but Jude takes the things that have been written, like First Enoch, like the book we'll see today, The Assumption of Moses, and he uses it to illustrate the truth he's getting across. So he's taking this mindset of the Jews, and he's working in this book to get them to understand truth. Some of these things are foreign to us. They're hard for us to, to get and to conceptualize, but it wasn't for them. Now, as we come to this verse, remember that Jude is dealing with people who claim to be Christians and inside the church who are leading a way of rebellion. There's several groups of people we see in the New Testament who live a life of rebellion against God. Some are outside of faith. They're what we would call lost. They need the gospel. We, we deal with that. All of us, once we're in that position, we always deal with them with love and compassion and kindness and mercy. That is the way Christ approached them. That's the way we approach them. But once you come inside the faith, once you come inside Christianity, if you begin to teach what is false, if you begin to teach a way of rebellion, you see Paul, you see Peter, you see all these guys, you deal with them in a way that sometimes comes across harsh, tough. Jesus did that. Jesus took the money changers, and he drove them out of a temple on two occasions with a whip. It means he beat them with a whip. He told the Pharisees, you're snakes and you're scorpions and you're deceptive. People inside faith who should be teaching the way of God and the way of faith when they teach what is false, they oftentimes dealt with them in ways that are tough. So make that distinction. We see a harshness, a toughness with Jude, not with people outside of faith, but within faith. And verse 8 says this, and yet in the same way, these men, false teachers, by their dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Last week, when talking about the false teachers, he compared them to three groups of people that rebelled against God. People of Israel who rebelled against God, some angelic forces that rebelled against God, and pagans in Sodom and Gomorrah that rebelled against God, all of them at destruction. In the same way as these who reject God, he says, by dreaming. Back in that day, they looked at dreaming as being a source of God revealing things to them. Now, we don't do that today. We have the complete New Testament. We have the Gospels, the book of Acts, all the letters. That's how God reveals to us. He doesn't reveal new truth by dreams and visions. 
Someone comes up to me and says, I had a dream, I had a vision, God revealed X, Y, or Z to me. I'm going to be highly, highly skeptical because God doesn't operate that way. He operates through the Holy Spirit in our prayer life. He operates through our reading of the New Testament and the Old. He operates through the power of what the church is doing with the gospel. That's how he functions. Back then, dreams were important. Daniel had dreams. You know, there's no Old Testament figures that had dreams, that had visions. In the New Testament, Peter had a dream where the, the, the sheet came down with the food that was clean to eat. Paul had a dream about where he should go to Macedonia, to Europe, to share the gospel. People would claim dreams as being their source of authority. Now, these false teachers said that God had shown them a dream or a vision, and their dreams and their visions were in contrast to what was being truthful, what Paul had taught and Peter had taught and all these other teachers had taught. And when they taught something false, they leveraged the fact that they had experienced these dreams in order to get their point across and lead people astray. Here's what Jude says about their so-called dreams, what they do to why you know their dreams are false. He says they defile the flesh. The word defile means to pollute. So they force them or they cause people or lead people to come into a life of immorality. They teach things that are fundamentally immoral. If you look at what God expects of us in our life, he expects us to live lives that are wholesome. Peter says that God, quoting God from Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. A set apart life, a life dedicated to God, not a God, not a life about sensual pleasures and the lust of the flesh. These people had committed themselves to that life. They had committed to a life of moral failure, of sexual indulgence. That's where the path they were heading down. Now, don't get this confused. This is not the struggles we go through. This is not the struggle with lust or the struggle with pornography or the struggle with relationships. It's not the battles we face. This is a commitment to that life. They have committed to a lifestyle of corruption. We see that today sometimes. We see that happening in the church. We understand outside the church, it's always been that way. People who have lived in rebellion against God have always lived lives that were, for the most part, pretty immoral. They hid it a lot better. I mean, it's a lot more open now. I mean, I grew up. Nothing that happens now is any different than what happened when I grew up in the 70s or when some, a few of y'all, only a couple of y'all older than me. That's the problem with these contemporary services. I'm older than everybody. You're experiencing that too, Brian, right now also at your age. <laughs> I mentioned that you may have missed the part where I talked about your throat being a result of old age. By the way, at 40, you don't need as much hair product either. That's another story altogether. <laughs> where was I before I was picking on him? He'll probably get revenge later. But it didn't matter if you grew up in the 50s, the 40s, the 30s. You could have grown up in the 1800s. It's all the same. That culture has always been that way. It's the world in which people live. But now it's more open. But the problem is it comes inside the church. So they take the way the culture, the world looks at life. And the way they live their life, and now some coming inside the church are saying, let's take the way the culture lives their life, and let's bring it inside the church as being acceptable. Because we don't want people to feel bad about themselves. We don't want them to feel they're not loved by God. We don't want them to feel that we don't accept them, so we'll accept their way of life as being normative. That's what the false teachers did, and that's what they do today. Not only that, but it says that they rejected authority. The idea of authority is not one of the normal words we see for authority, like power or the right to rule. It's the word that speaks of lordship. They rejected lordship is what it means. And the lordship they would reject would be the lordship of Jesus. Jesus has a claim upon our life. When we come to faith in Jesus, he has a claim upon the way we live, the way we serve, what we believe. He gives us that claim. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us what he expects. And while they didn't have the Sermon on the Mount in Jude's day, they still had the core teaching that came that way. They still taught about what Jesus expected. And they rejected what Jesus expected of their life. 
and made up their own way. And today we see creeping into our churches, denominations and churches taking things outside of the Christian faith and making them normative, rejecting the clear teachings of the Christ, of the Gospels, of the New Testament writers, and accepting other ways to God. One of the things I see creeping into the churches now and into Christianity, and I hear people talk and I hear people write about it inside the Christian faith, is that we've got to realize there's more than one way to God. As we've experienced more cultures and more religions and all this diversity, that we need to recognize there's multiple ways to God. Why would God let there be so many religions and so many different beliefs if some of them didn't have truth? Because man is sinful. That's why he allows it to happen. We've rebelled against him. There's always been rejection of God. At the time of Christ, basically hardly anybody followed God. Even the Jews had become corrupt. When Abraham came on the scene in Genesis 12, everybody had rejected God. Nobody followed God. And yet for the church to say that other ways to come to God are acceptable is absolutely in contradiction to Christ. John 14, 6, I think probably the most important thing Jesus said to our culture today, to our churches today. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. He said basically this, I and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way, no other truth, no other life. And then he said, and by no means, he used actually a double negative. It means this, there ain't no way you can ever come to the Father but through me. And to stand up in a church, to call yourself a Christian, and to say there's another way to God is to call Christ a liar. That's the false teaching. It's unacceptable. Then he said, not only do they do that, they revile angelic majesties. The word revile means to blaspheme or slander. It's going to be used three times, once in verse 8, once in verse 9, once in verse 10. Now, this whole phrase, angelic majesties, is kind of strange. So let me just say, say that I don't have time in this message with this verse and the ones I still have to get to. To, to go through all the thought process of all that. Sometimes you just got to trust me. I know that's a, that's, a, that's a crazy thing to ask. You to trust me when I'm sitting there preaching about false pastors and false preachers. But that's not me. <laughs> so, so the best and simplest way of understanding is in the Old Testament mindset, or the way that Jews would have thought about the angels from the scriptures of the Old Testament, is angels had three primary functions, the angelic. One was to praise God, to worship him. Isaiah 6, the seraphim and cherubim, part of the angelic. The second thing is they protected Israel. In Isaiah, you see the angelic protecting Israel. But probably the most important thing they did is they communicated God's will. In the Old Testament scriptures, in the Jewish world, angels communicated the mind of God. To revile the angelic is to bless and slander the way that God communicated truth. It was a rejection of the authority of God. That's what it boiled down to. And that's what they did. They rejected the authority of God's word. And we see that happening all the time today. In Christianity and in churches, there are those who reject the authority of the New Testament upon our life. And what they do is simply this. They say there are other religious documents, other religious truths, other religious expressions, and we need to give them some credibility and some validity. So they elevate the Vedas of Hinduism or the teachings of Buddha. Or they elevate the Quran. And in the process, they devalue the New Testament. They devalue Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. They devalue those books. And they elevate the others and say, then the truth is wherever you can find it. We understand that happens in the world outside us. I expect someone who is of the, of the Islamic faith to think the Quran should be elevated. I expect the Hindu to think that the Vedas should be followed. I expect those who are Buddhists to follow the teachings of Buddha. I don't expect that within the Christian faith. 
And when you come inside the church, you come inside Christianity and see that, there's a problem. These false teachers were arrogant. And they were changing the, the, changing the direction and changing the look and the feel of the Christian faith. So understand this. False teachers today do the same thing. Our concern isn't what the outside world teaches. I get that. It's when it creeps into the church. It is arrogant and egotistical to think we are capable of redefining Christianity to meet our culture's values. It shows contempt towards God to think we can reform the life and work of Jesus. Think about it. People are trying to reform Jesus. They're changing the fundamental truth of the Christian experience and faith. They're doing it because they're arrogant, thinking that the culture can teach us in the faith something about how to come to God, to think we need to learn from the culture and change and adapt the way we believe and worship in what we express. It is a dangerous thing to have that come into the church. And some of you, either in this service, I know in the other services, in the past, and the one to come, some of you have left churches and denominations because it's exactly what they did. And it's happening more and more and more. This has always been a problem in the church. This is not new to us. Jude was dealing with it. Paul dealt with it in the book of Galatians, probably written in about 68, 69 AD, less than 20 years after Jesus. Paul was already dealing with false teachers, doing the same thing, corrupting Christianity from within. And there's a danger when you do that. He goes on in verse 9 through 13. Now, I got to go. So I'm going to speed dial through these, okay? I'm, we're going to go super fast through these verses. Verse 9. Verse 9 is actually referencing a book called The Assumption of Moses. In, in the interbiblical period of time, there was a book called The Assumption of Moses. We don't really have any full copies of it. It exists anymore. Just some things. Some guys commented on it. This story comes from this. It is not to be taken as scripture. Judah's leveraging it. He's using it to drive home a point. But Michael, the archangel, the highest of all created beings was Michael, the archangel. He's mentioned numerous places in the Bible. He disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, but he did not dare pronounce against him a railing or a blaspheming judgment, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Rebuke you. What happened in the assumption of Moses is that the devil claimed the body of Moses. Now, in Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies and God buries him, and, he, and it says that no one knows where he buried him. It's just God did it. We accept that. But evidently, in the Jewish world, in the interbiblical period, that wasn't good enough. They want to know what happened to Moses' body. So they said what happened with the body of Moses is that the archangel, archangel Michael went to bury him and that Satan confronted him and he told the archangel Michael that he got the body of Moses because A, it was human, it was flesh, and B, Moses was a murderer. And instead of using his authority, which he had because he was the head angel, the archangel, archangel Michael, instead of using that authority to say no... He did not curse or blaspheme, but he appealed to God. What he's showing is the humility. And he's showing that Michael was able not to utilize the authority he had, but to defer to God in humility against the arrogance of Satan. Now, what's happening here is he's using that to say the false teachers are arrogant. The false teachers are egotistical. You believe in this story of Michael taking the body of Moses, then learn from the humility of Michael. He's not saying it's a true story. He's not saying I accept it, but he's pointing out the arrogance of the false teachers. Then in verse 10, he says this, But these men revile, or they slander the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasonable animals, by these things they are destroyed. These men revile, or they blaspheme, 
what they don't understand. Now, the false teachers claim through their dreams and visions to have a special knowledge, a special understanding. They were enlightened. But what really happens, Judah's saying, is that they're just living like animals by their basic lust and instincts. The, the, the humans, instinctive, like animals, lust, were immoral. That's what they're living by. They don't reason. They don't think things through. They're like animals, and they're going to be destroyed by it. Now, most of you probably have pets. You know, we have two dogs, and we, everybody, we all know we think our dogs are special. Everybody thinks their children are special and their dogs are special. I get that. And you love your dogs. My wife, my wife loves our dog. She loves our dogs. I've said this before more than she loves me. She never scratches my belly. She doesn't every time she leaves the house. She doesn't give me bacon or a treat. You know, nothing. I mean, so these dogs are special dogs, and I know it. And we know, and, and we know they're smart, and they lick us and love us and miss, it, miss us. But at the end of the day, they don't rationalize. They're not, they're not, they don't understand. They don't think things through. They're animals. And that's what these false teachers were animals. Not only that, here's what we see in verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for money or pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam or Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So now Jude mentions three Old Testament figures that these Jews would understand were sinful and rebellious, especially in light of how they fought. Cain, in Genesis chapter 4, killed his brother uh, Abel. And, and we, we understand that the murder, but if you keep reading on through other parts of the Old and even the New Testament, what you begin to realize is the, the motivation behind Cain was an evilness. And so the Jews attributed to Cain an evilness towards his killing. Um, Balaam is a character mentioned in Numbers 22 and 24. He was a prophet, and the king of Moab asked Balaam if he would prophesy against people of Israel, but he refused to do it. But instead, what we find out, and what you see in, in Numbers 31, 16, and then in other places in the Old Testament, is that Balaam helped lead the people of Israel into idolatry for the sake of money. He was greedy. Whenever I hear about Balaam and I read about it, I smile a little bit. It's a little humorous to me personally. When I came here in a view of a call six years ago, there was a question and answer period. You know, they always do that to pastors. They ask a few questions. And so uh, one of the members of the church who is no longer with us, not because they died, they're just no longer with us, uh, got up and pontificated about Balaam and explained the whole story quite at length, I might add, and then asked me, he said, if you come pastor here like Balaam, are you for money going to lead us into an evil, adulterous, and sinful way? And I, just, I mean, that's got to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard, you know? You know how people say there's no such thing as a dumb question? Well, they're dumb questions, yeah. I've, been, I've had churches over, seven different churches ask me a ton of questions that I've gone through, not to count the ones that I've interviewed with. That's the dumbest question ever. Hey, preacher, are you going to lead us in our idolatry and sin and rebellion against God for a lot of money? We want to know ahead of time. I'm like, you got me, man. You figured it out. That's why I'm coming. I don't know how I kept it hidden all these years, you know. That's what Balaam did. Balaam led them down a path for money. And then Korah led in rebellion in number 16 against Moses, God's chosen. And by rebelling against the authority of Moses, he was rebelling against God. He was rebellious. Cain, evil, Balaam, Balaam, greedy, Korah, rebellious. That's what these false teachers were like. And then quickly in verse 12 and 13, these are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. The hidden reef, if a ship would come into a harbor and the reef is hidden, it would lead to a wreck. In your love feast, in your time to celebrate, uh, with communion. When they feast with you without fear, no fear of God, they care for themselves, they care for no one else. They're clouds without water, carried along by the winds. 
We know what that's like, right? Clouds are supposed to promise rain, no rain. We see that from time to time. They're like autumn trees without fruit. They're doubly dead, they're uprooted. They're like waves of the sea, casting their own shame like foam, like a, a wave would bring debris up onto the shore. They're wandering stars. You cannot, like a shooting star is what that means, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. You would follow the stars in navigation, but you wouldn't follow shooting stars. What he's saying is this, they deceive. They promise one thing, but there's something else. So here's how he describes those false teachers to these people from a Jewish background. He says to these people who are, living, who are rebellious that, that they are arrogant, that they are living by the basic instincts of animals, that they are evil, rebellious, and greedy, and they deceive you. Because through their visions, they claim things that end up defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and rebelling against the word of God. That's the false teachers. I'm not talking about people outside the church, but inside the church. Which brings us now to need to understand today's mindset. Just like we have to understand the Jewish mindset, we need to understand how we relate to the world around us. And we live in a world where most of us kind of grew up and most of us under understanding of the world it is kind of from a Christian mindset that God, God is the creator, he's the authority, he's the ultimate authority, he has a, he's a moral God that expects right from wrong. That's how we understand life. And people outside of Christ tend not to think of it that way. What you see in our culture today are two basic movements that are happening. And, and you, you, you know, anybody under the age of 30, they basically have grown up in this. And some of you with kids, all of you have kids, they're experiencing this. Is relativism and syncretism. Relativism says this, that there is no absolute authority. Reality is whatever you make it out to be. We hear people say, well, that's your reality. This is my reality. Uh, so they reject truth. And syncretism is the belief that all things are equal that all religions, all philosophies, they're all equal. That creeps into our culture, and that's our culture, and we understand that. That's nothing new in the culture. I mean, from the history of Christianity, from the history of mankind, that kind of culture has been fairly common. Outside of Jewish and Christian uh, beliefs, that is the culture. But now what's happening is within Christianity, we're taking those cultural values, and people are bringing it into the Christian faith. And instead of encountering a culture and confronting the culture in love with truth, they're embracing the culture, and they are connecting the culture to within the church, not to change the culture, but to change the church. Listen carefully. Anyone that changes, modifies, or redefines Jesus, the gospel, or salvation is a false teacher, and what they teach is false. Anytime you take Jesus, anytime you take the gospel, anytime you take salvation, and you change it at all, you modify it just a little bit. You tweak it to fit what you want it to fit. You are teaching falsely. Outside the church, we understand that. But never should that ever happen with inside the Christian community, and it does. And Jude would want us to know, and Paul would want us to know, and John would want us to know, and more importantly, Jesus would want us to know. You cannot accept that, because they never did. And I know people say, well, you've got to be more loving and more compassionate. Here's the thing. Words like love, words like forgiveness, there are words. They come from the Christian faith. Don't let the outside culture take our terms and our words and use it against us. If you really love people like Jesus loved people, we will fight against all that's false concerning Jesus. That's okay. Somehow it's my fault. Tolerating false teachers never loving. So to tolerate what is false, any false teaching to tolerate is never loving. Instead, if you love people like Jesus, you'll always fight against what is false. That's the loving thing to do. And the reason it's the loving thing to do, we should realize, is that people who live in sin and rebellion need to come to Jesus. 
But if the church conforms and condones their rebellion, they never will. People need Jesus. We know that. We love them. We want them to come to Christ. But if we condone their sin, if we conform to their sin, why would they ever come to Jesus? Why would they think they need to come to Jesus if the church is just like them and accepts everything they do? What we're telling them is it's okay to rebel against God. You keep rebelling, but understand this. To keep rebelling against God by following what is false is to follow a way of condemnation. If people keep in a way of rebellion, which is clearly false to God, then they're following the condemnation that God says is happening. And we don't want them to do that if we love or care for them. So we can't let false teaching get us to conform or to condone what that false teaching is. We need to make sure people understand this, that they need to turn away from what is false and turn to what is true. Turn to Jesus as he's revealed in the New Testament. Turn away from what is false. But if you want to turn away from what is false, you can't say what is false is acceptable. You've got to get them to turn to Jesus. And it's to Jesus. Not that he's preached in the culture. Not that he's preached by some who have taken and changed and modified and twisted it. The Jesus of the New Testament. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts. In the letters of Paul, Peter, John. James, Jude, the guy who wrote Hebrews. How they present him is how we present him. Listen, I I get it. There's false teaching all around us. I know it. There always has been. There always will be. But we don't want the false teaching to come to us inside the church. And so we need to always fight against it so that we can share the gospel with people. We need people to turn from what is false, to turn to Christ. Some of you know, folks, who are in that position. You have loved ones and family members, friends, who are believing what is false. You need them to turn to what is true. You love them. You pray for them. But you can never accept as normative that which is against God. And you need to make a commitment today that you're going to find some way, some capacity within you, some, some pathway to help them understand what is true as Jesus is true. Make that commitment today that that's what you're going to do. That's the path you're going to take to help them know what is true. Some of you come from a background, as I shared before, where there was false teaching. I've talked about that last week and the week before. It's a tough background to get away from. Make the commitment to break. Make the commitment to focus on Jesus. Make the commitment today, Lord, I want to live and know and believe what is true. Make that commitment in your life. And some of you, you just need to come to Christ. You've never trusted Christ to be your Savior. You can do that right now where you are. You can come and talk to one of us. We're going to be standing down here, some of us. And if you need to give your life to Christ, we encourage you to give your life to Christ. If you want someone to pray with, just we'll we'll pray with you. If you want to join our church, we'd love to have you join our church. I don't know what you need to do, but I know this. You need to follow the way of Jesus. Do not follow the way of rebellion. Lord, we thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord, for the salvation we have in him. Thank you for the way you love us. Well, you care about us. And we thank you, for the, Father, for the fact that you are truth and you give us truth. And that which is false, that which, Father, is in rebellion against you, we don't have to follow that anymore. But God, because we don't follow it anymore, we must help people to find the true path. So God, while we love people, let us reject the way of rebellion. Let us reject the idea that we must embrace our culture and bring it into the church. And let us always, always, Father, teach and proclaim what is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's in his name we come and pray. Amen.
Amen. Would you stand if you need to come? We'll be here at the front. You come.